You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to a new week here at The Conservative Conscience. This is Daniel Horowitz, your host of The Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review. Your one-stop shop for news and views and a vision on what it means to be a conservative, how to apply it, and why we are right and they are wrong. And I'm telling you, my speech was given at CPAC. I am very... I'm actually enthusiastic about CPAC now, all because of one speech. No, she didn't get it from the show, and no, she didn't need me to say it, but she said it on her own. Did you guys catch Michelle Malkin's speech? If you didn't, I'm going to post it in show notes. You got to hear it. It essentially, in about 20 minutes, was Friday's show, where she called out CPAC at CPAC. It was amazing watching it. Absolutely amazing. The themes she hit on. How they spent nothing but a 20-minute panel there talking about the biggest issue of immigration. She called them out for it. Good for her. She had this amazing quote that I really want to use to frame today's show. We're going to have a special guest on from the Public Interest Legal Foundation to speak about election fraud, the force multiplying issue of election law, how it ties into judicial supremacy, how it ties into immigration, how it ties into stolen sovereignty, all of our important issues that not only is the left winning elections and winning policies and winning arguments while we take selfies and give speeches – But the policies and the arguments that they're winning are enabling them to win elections. So it's not just that we only win elections when we win them and then do nothing with them. Because of our do-nothing attitude, we won't even be able to win elections for too much longer. I found it amazing when she said – you know, she was talking about the theme, the need to fight. Not to sit and have these little get-togethers on how, oh, we're, we're, we're such a beautiful movement. Look at how we've grown. Look at what we've done. And, and she basically got up there and did my shtick, you know, prophet of war and lamentation, because that's what you need. And she said, no, actually, the future is very grim. You look at the force multiplying issues on immigration, and we're losing. We're losing this battle. She said, quote, ultimately, our future will not be secured in a Fox News anchor chair. I love it. I mean, that was awesome. But it was surreal having that speech shortly before President Trump's speech. Because everything we predicted or observed that was going on at CPAC last week was embodied in the president's speech. Where the president gets up there, he has his stand-up routine down to a science, stokes up the base, says mostly what we want to hear. I don't disagree with it. 
but it's like we're living in an alternative universe. He literally gets up there and starts talking about birthright citizenship, how unfair it is, sanctuary cities, and meanwhile, all that stuff is continuing. Whatever happened to his executive order on that? We know his action on signing the budget sellout with its amnesty provision in it. We know his action with continuing TPS amnesty. We know his action with continuing catch and release. We know that they're continuing to give grant funding to sanctuary cities. AP has an article out. We're going to focus on, on, on this point this week with 29 major sanctuary cities continuing to get grant funding. You'll be like, Daniel, well, what do you want? What do you want from Trump? The courts, the courts. Well, gee, yeah, so then then you're missing the point. So you're basically admitting that Trump is just a figurehead giving speeches and any district judge could just shut down our country on every last thing he, he promised to do that he actually has the authority to do executively. So what's the point? What is the point? And I'm sitting and watching people cheer and I'm thinking like, are you living in an alternative universe? While we focus on speeches and applause lines, the left is actually winning arguments, winning policies, changing the country. While we decry their change, they're changing it. Republicans give speeches. Democrats create votes. But it's not just that. See, we create votes too here and there, and we win elections here and there, but then do nothing with them. And in fact, enforce the other side's agenda And when we're not doing it, the courts are doing it, irrespective of whoever's in power. When they create votes, believe me, they do stuff. I mean, you look at states where Democrats have control, man, it's a blitzkrieg. Guns, election fraud, sanctuary cities. I mean, they don't waste a minute on their agenda. Our side's like, what do you want? All the courts and the filibuster. Can you imagine Not a single major sustained effort to pass any even standalone legislation in the two years of the trifecta control was ever put forth to deal with the courts on election fraud. To deal with enabling states to better combat the fraud without um, the courts getting involved. To combat sanctuary cities. I mean, we're talking about sanctuary cities and photo ID still pull 60, 70 percent issues and Republicans won't deal with them. And Trump is still talking about it while his administration is doing the opposite. It's amazing. There was one giveaway line, very revealing line in Trump's speech. It's about the fourth time he has mentioned this notion that, oh, the economy is so good that we need more immigrants even though we have a record high immigration with a record high trajectory for year upon year, decade upon decade, the last couple of decades. Then he says, oh, it's going to be merit-based. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. Notice he doesn't talk about the Raise Act much anymore and chain migration. And again, even when he does talk about these things, they're just words. Look at what he's actually doing. And I'm telling you, Trump is conditioning us for what Jared is going to put forth. The Koch brothers 
have been working in this White House for months now. Can you imagine under the Trump administration with Trump saying things that are anathema to the Kochs? While he's saying them. People like Numbers USA, CIS, FAIR are cut out from the White House, pretty much, while the Koch groups are running the show through the sewer pipe conduit for the sewer and swamp, which is Jared Kushner. And really, Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney has always been an open borders guy. No, but Daniel, he's really good on libertarian issues on budget. Oh, really? He screwed us in every single budget issue. Every single budget issue as OMB director and um, chief of staff. He, he would put out all these budgets, and then not only wouldn't he stand behind it, he would have Trump's agree to sign bills that humiliated and repudiated his own budget, increasing spending in every single account that he promised to cut. So again, we're getting that benefit. We're getting all the liabilities of the libertarians and the Kochs. None of the benefits. Because they've long you know, given up on those issues and have basically decided, hey, we're going to pick the issues where we agree with the progressives and push for that, leaving conservatives on the outside playing the away game. And it was bizarre because, if I'm not mistaken, I think Trump even tweeted out like praising Michelle Malkin's speech. Like, dude, if you read between the lines, I mean, it's a repudiation of your administration and Kushner – Cheap labor. I mean, she called that all out. Business interests. God bless her also for calling out Van Jones. Now, I know it's a little bit complicated because she seems to disagree and supports criminal justice deform. And she was like, dude, why do you have him bring me in? But if you actually watch what she called criminal justice reform, and for those of you who remember our endless podcasts and writings last year on this issue, I explained that you know she was talking about prosecutorial abuse, abuse of evidence, wrong, wrongfully convicted. I don't disagree with a word of that. And, and the tragedy is none of that is even addressed in that, in that bill they passed. It's all about being weak on crime. Maybe we'll get her on the show. If I had ever talked to her, I really think we're of the same mind on the issue. Um, and she's kind of seems to get it a little bit that, that the train that, the American Conservative Union and CPAC and these types are jumping on board for so-called criminal justice reform is not a good train. And I think that much she gets. Um, but anyway, that was really worthwhile. But it's just amazing, this political heroine at CPAC. It boggles the mind that we fool ourselves into thinking we're winning when the other side's winning. And, you know, nowhere is this more evident, this dichotomy between reality of what is happening on the actual playing field, the passes being made, the running plays, the scores being run up, the points being made by the Democrats, and just the cheerleaders in the stands uh, on the Republican side. See, we got cheerleaders. They have players. They have operational people. Then when it comes to election law. I mean, this is really the force multiplier, the nexus of election law, voter fraud, the courts, NGOs, and yes, immigration ties in in several ways, obviously with non-citizens voting, being registered to vote, the threat of that, 
as well as being counted in the census, which, by the way, is their form of voting, even if they don't vote. They are all voting in that sense, distorting our reapportionment, giving California several more congressional seats, several more electoral votes. These are force-multiplying stolen sovereignty issues that cut to the core of why we have a government, to protect the whole of the people, to protect the social contract. You know, There's a right to life, liberty, property, but then there's a fourth, so to speak, right of a society, governance by the consent of the governed, as spelled out in the Declaration of Independence, that the power has to flow from the citizenry. So if you have a fraudulent electorate, whether it's non-citizens voting or with among the citizenry, other voting anom- anomalies, particularly in this era of a very polarized nation, very, very close elections um, across the board, certainly small-time elections, but increasingly congressional races and even Senate races, and uh, again, potentially more and more in the presidential elections statewide, this is a very big issue. So we sit and talk and talk, we give speeches and we give speeches, and the left continues to do. There's a lot going on right now. Last week, we spoke about the Texas effort to combat non-citizens voting and the problems in the courts. We discussed the problems with lawsuits against private entities that merely want to work with uh, local officials to publicize the voter rolls and the problems with the voter rolls. But then there's also, this week, the biggest item the House agenda, Pelosi's House, is H.R. 1. Now, whenever you hear the word H.R. 1, you should realize that's something very important. H.R. 1, for example, was Obamacare. It's usually the number one priority of a Congress. In this case, Democrats control the House. What is their number one priority? Bingo. Voter fraud. A bill, an omnibus election fraud bill that basically prevents states from ever doing anything meaningful to combat voter fraud from ensuring non-citizens vote. They mandate same-day registration, automatic registration, all sorts of things we're going to get into. Um, There's nobody better to speak to on this issue than Logan Churchwell and his folks at Public Interest Legal Foundation. When you talk about all these phony groups literally doing nothing with the real estate and scarce conservative cash they get, and I resent that no end, how much money is wasted, Public Interest Legal Foundation is pretty much the only show on the ground, uh, you know, kind of the Spartans fighting off numbers that are much larger than them, endless Soros-funded uh, and really business-funded foundations that promote all of these voting anomaly ideas and prevent anyone from cleaning our voting rules. Um, Logan Churchwell is the communications and research director for a Public Interest Legal Founda- Foundation run by our friend Jay Christian Adams. Um, He has spent his time fighting voter fraud across the country, promoting 21st century ways to secure our vote, the most important policy of all of our government. We got tremendous feedback the last time you were on, Logan. Great to have you back again. How are you doing? Great. It's the battle of Thermopylae every day, it seems for us. (laughs) It really is. And it's just, it bothers me more and more. You know, I speak about, I always use the analogy of Leon Lett um, in the 1993 Super Bowl with the Dallas Cowboys versus the Buffalo Bills. He 
picked off uh, Jim Kelly late in the game, got an interception, ran it down the field, and he was around the 10, 15-yard line. He started dancing as if, as if he had the ball in the end zone, but he didn't. And one of the most remarkable plays I've ever seen, Don Beebe, the Bills tight end, comes from the back, strips the ball out of his hand, and uh, denies the touchdown. Now, in that case, the Cowboys were way ahead. I mean, it was a blowout Super Bowl, so it didn't matter. In this case, we're we're behind, and we're doing the Leon Lett. Um, could you explain... Gosh, where to start? I mean, you could take this from any of the areas I led off with, but if you could kind of start maybe specifically with what's going on with Texas, with the state, and with what you guys are involved with personally with a lawsuit, and then we'll zoom back to to uh, HR1. Sure. So in Texas, uh, the, the folks there, Attorney General Ken Paxton, the Secretary of State and others, uh, in, lo- in large part, thanks to Governor Greg Abbott's leadership and just prompting on this, Texas had the grand idea to say, you know what, we, we have a very large thousand-plus mile border with Mexico. People are coming and going domestically, internationally through our state all the time. Uh, and almost, and many of them are entitled to engage with state services like driver's licenses uh, where they could be offered voter registration. So how about we leverage the data that we have in terms of the information that we have from drivers where they say they're a U.S. citizen or they aren't, and they document that one way or the other in order to get a driver's license, just like every other state does. But what if we took that database and we compared it of the the DMV customers that demonstrated to be non-citizens because they flashed their green card or whatever, Let's take that information and let's compare that against the state of Texas's list of voters and let's find matches. And then let's let the counties know how many of these matches they have and then instruct the counties, not order them, but just instruct them because the state is not as powerful to make orders like that. But let's give them guidance on what to do with these matches if you want to do anything. But step one is Take a look at your list. Make sure we're talking about the same person. It's not a a bad match. And then here is a letter uh, that you can send to that registrant to say, look, there's a question about your information. You tell the voter registrar that you're a citizen, but you tell the DMV that you're not. Who's out of date? Who's wrong? Because we know we're talking to the correct person now. Um, That practice is not entirely unique to the state of Texas. A growing number of states, it's small, but it's growing, um, it's doing that. Virginia was the first. And Virginia essentially has the same system where they leverage their DMV information, uh, which has alien information in it, and compare it against their voter roll, which should only have citizens in it. So this is not a brand new practice that Texas dreamed up. But the way the organized left is behaving, you would think otherwise. Because about, what was it, 12 hours into that, um, those letters being announced where you heard 95,000 potential non-citizens registered to vote in Texas. A very big number, got lots of headlines. Very quickly thereafter, groups like LULAC, the ACLU, and others uh, started making threats that they were going to sue, they were going to enjoy the process, and there they went. They sued at least four times uh, all over the state, even as far as Tyler, Texas. Uh, they were suing the state of Texas. They were suing individual county officials to get them to stop. Uh, and eventually, all those lawsuits condensed into one case in San Antonio, uh, where LULAC is the main plaintiff. 
and there's a preliminary order from the judge saying, Texas, you blew it. You included people in this 95,000 that should not have been, uh, and you could be intimidating uh, by this action. Uh, folks who receive this letter or people that might receive this letter, uh, this, this is potential voter intimidation. So you have to halt this right now. We will come together at a later date uh, on what to, how we proceed on this in terms of the trial and just procedural issues. Uh, but unless Texas and the individual counties are get are receiving in, um, receive permission from the court to continue on verifying citizenship with this list, uh, then they have to halt. Uh, they have to stand still and wait for the case to re uh, resolve. Um, so essentially, and here's here's how we boil this down, how we need to think about it. When it comes to clean voter rolls, there is not a magic algorithm. There are not roaming experts that can parachute into a jurisdiction and just start cleaning these things up. Voter roll maintenance requires time. And the number one tool in the toolbox is a stamp uh, and a letter to that registered voter with questions uh, saying, Looks like there may be eligibility issues. Do you still live there? Is, are you still alive? Any of those kinds of questions involving voterless maintenance. Step one is almost always send a letter to the person you have a question about and see what they say. Um, and that's, that's federal law. Every state has rules on how to follow that federal law. A federal law that was signed by Bill Clinton, and it was actually the first law that Bill Clinton signed, uh, you'll notice here the past is prologue, just like H.R. 1 we have now, Bill Clinton signed Motor Voter, his first act mm. as signing the law as president. Um, but so this is old law, relatively speaking. But LULAC and others would have the court and the general public believe that if you are a registered voter and you receive a piece of official mail from your local county saying, there might be an issue with your registration. Can you follow steps one through whatever and get back to us on it? You could be intimidated under the Voting Rights Act. So LULAC is suing the state of Texas under Section 11B of the Voting Rights Act, which is the voter intimidation section. Uh, this is the same section that the Justice Department brought against the new Black Panther Party. Um, and also earlier than that, uh, it would get some activists in rural Mississippi, there's only two federal cases of, of voter intimidation brought by the Justice Department going back to W years. Uh, and now, now we have a case that says by following motor voter, the maintenance provisions of it, that can be intimidating to voters. Uh, and that is essentially where we stand with Texas. And Public Interest Legal Foundation intervened on Friday uh, into the case to stand on the side of Texas uh, to share our perspective on the larger issue here, which is LULAC in particular, uh, they're not just picking on Texas for non-citizen voting concerns. They are very well funded. Uh, they proudly promote the fact that they are funded by the Verizon Foundation at the bottom of their homepage on their website. And what they're doing with that money is, is if you are a person, whether you are an individual, a nonprofit, or even a state, government, and you talk in public about concerns over non-citizen voter participation, they come after you. And we know this because right now, Public Interest Legal Foundation is being sued in Virginia for publishing white papers, research papers, about 
non-citizen voter participation according to public records available in Virginia. Uh, you might recall uh, a few years back, we, we published a report saying that the state of Virginia, Commonwealth of Virginia removed over 5,500 people from the voter rolls over the past few years um, and called them declared non-citizens. The government document that we relied on, the name of the document was called declared non-citizen, and there was 5,000 plus names on it. When we published that information and we laid out, here is how these people are being identified. Here is how they are being removed by the state. Here are legal concerns in terms of um, what happens if they vote, what happens to their immigration pipeline, uh, all of these various issues and how they intersect with non-citizen voting and how they got there. LULAC considered that intimidating. So they're suing us just like they're suing Texas, the exact same lawsuit you could have copied and pasted, the big piece of it. Uh, but our problem uh, with LULAC in their eyes is that we just published a white paper about it. Texas is giving guidance on how to identify and remove potentially uh, registered non-citizens, and that's considered intimidation as well. So you see in a, in a third party and an official capacity, if you talk about non-citizens voting in public, uh, they're going to come after you. This is the end game, which is let's halt voter purging, as they like to call it. And if you talk about quote unquote voter purging, especially any kind of maintenance that we don't like, like non-citizen voting, uh, we're going to sue you for voter intimidation. We're going to sue you for defamation. And my personal favorite, they're also saying we're in violation of the Klan Act. <laughs> Go find a case published on the Klan Act. You're not going to find one. That, that's, that's the end game here. Ending list maintenance as we know it and shutting up anyone who talks about it, official or private. Wow. So, so that's the thing. In addition to this uh, lawsuit against the state of Texas, Texas Secretary of State, it's a lawsuit against PILF, a private organization, for merely, I mean, posting that information posted by the government. I, I, by that standard, I could be sued a lot for for the stuff that I put out. Um, you know, just another example of how the rights that are in the Constitution don't exist, right? Clear, unambiguous First Amendment, but super rights that they created are now real rights. And and one of the things that I wanted you to speak to philosophically that's bothered philosophically slash legally constitutionally about this whole effort is that you know, voting is not a right. And I've cited this on my show a couple times last week from the crafters of the 14th Amendment. It's very close to a fundamental right, but it's not something that you absolutely cannot live without, like the bare bones, life, liberty, and property. Um, it is still what Jacob Howard, the primary drafter of Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, said is uh, primary, primarily um, the creation of positive law. Um, which is why, again, they needed the 15th Amendment to even give uh, freed slaves the right to vote. The 14th Amendment didn't even do that. Um, and yet, when it comes to real rights, I mean, unambiguous rights, First Amendment, Second Amendment, let's take Second Amendment, for example, the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. The, it seems to me the equivalent of what the legal profession and these groups are doing would be like saying that there's nothing a state could do to even verify criminal status or eligibility to own a machine gun, much less ban owning a machine gun, 
right? You, that you can't in any way intimidate, question. And, and when it comes to the Second Amendment, they don't question or intimidate. I live in the state of Maryland. The, they, they downright get away with barring, prohibiting. I cannot carry any weapon of any caliber, of any sort, in any place in the state of Maryland. But when it comes to voting, which clearly was given over to the states, it wasn't taken away. Um, times, methods, and procedures. Congress has a slight avenue to get involved, not the federal courts. Um, over and beyond, if they're literally denying someone the right to vote just straight up for no, for no reason. I don't understand how merely asking questions to verify um, the fact that did you move, did you change addresses, did you, in this case, did you naturalize, how that could be too much of a burden relative to the state interest of protecting the right of all of us. Yeah, well, they're throwing up theories and seeing what sticks here. I mean, this is somewhat of a workaround of H.R. 1. So, And I don't want to jump too far into it just yet, but a big piece of H.R. 1 is setting new restrictions on how states and counties can quote-unquote purge. And I keep saying quote-unquote purge because uh, that is not the term that is used in the law. The law says list maintenance. The left says purge because which one sounds scarier? Uh, it's a very simple answer. So, but HR one would limit a state's ability to engage in those activities, which is already required by other federal law. So instead of waiting for HR one to play out, and they think it will in the long run, they know it's not going to pass in this year or next year, but maybe the year after that. But while we're waiting. Let's see what kind of case law we can drum up to, at the very least, clearly define what existing federal law says, has to say about uh, motor voter list maintenance. Uh, and, and, and it's, in essence, say you cannot remove, edit, whatever you want to call it, a voter record unless two things, one of two things happen. The person is dead. And you know they are dead only because next of kin or someone from the estate said they were dead and they gave you the death certificate. Or they relocated. And you cannot ultimately decide that that person is relocated and you can take action on their voter record unless they tell you they moved. Those are the extreme whoa, whoa, whoa. positions. Well, lo- Logan, slow down here. I- is it? I just want to make sure I'm, I'm correct here. Isn't it true... I just want to make sure I have the right number that the problem is so widespread that there are um, 2.75 million people that are set to be registered to vote in more than one state. Is that true? And there's millions. I mean, the numbers move around. Uh, some of the figures on that, they're, they're a bit old, kind of date back to 2012. They're Pew numbers. Sure. Uh, okay. But yes, you're, you're sitting just south of 10 million at any given time. And you're telling me that there's no way they could deal with that unless the person themselves self-reports. Right. That that is their their pie in the sky goal is to say you cannot do any, you cannot touch a registration as a voter registrar unless the owner of it gives you permission, even from beyond the grave, uh, because that you see where take Kansas for example, and they have the cross-check program. This is one of the real. One of Chris Kobach's original sins uh, is that he, although it was not his idea, he took it and expanded it from his predecessor, which said, you know what? 
How about all the secretaries of state or state election boards, whatever they are, how about we all get together and basically create an open line of communication where if a voter from one member state moves to another member state, then those two states can see it, they can communicate about it, and uh, one guy claims the, the voter and the other one removes them uh, because they know the guy moved. And the voter doesn't even have to necessarily know about it because the, the officials are talking to each other. Um, it's taken care of. That, in essence, was the Kansas cross-check system, and it grew to almost 40 states at its height. Uh, but the left went nuts about that because what if a mistake was made? What if John Brown or some other generic name moved from one member state to another, but it wasn't the same John Brown that, that everyone thought it was? And you moved too quickly, and that person was removed from the voter roll, and then they could not vote in time for the next election. What if, what if, what if? Uh. So you saw this concerted effort to attack the, the procedure of list matching. And they started with relocations, very boring stuff, moving from Kansas to Texas, Michigan to Florida, whatever. Um, people move around this country some from more states to, than others. Those secretaries of state realized that and said, you know what? This is not rocket science. Uh, we have a thing called the National Change of Address System. We have a thing called email. We have a thing called Microsoft Excel. We can use all of these things to communicate with each other. And if that registrant is not willing or just on, on the ball enough to let us know that they're moving around, we can watch them move around and we can handle the process on our own. Uh, in the early Obama years, the left attacked that like it was the greatest threat to a democracy there ever was. And it's just, we're talking about people moving around, not dead people, not non-citizens, any of that. But they attacked the concept of state agencies working with each other and comparing information. The act of comparing information was a danger to them. So they targeted uh, relocations first, and now they are targeting uh, the exact same process in Texas, you're comparing a statewide list of voters versus a statewide list of Texas driver's license holders. You're matching lists. Those lists may not be perfect on their own. And when you match them against each other, you might come to incorrect conclusions. And those incorrect conclusions can splash back on the voter registrant and intimidate them. You can't do it. You must stop. So I, I said already past the prologue, but here it is again. Eight years ago, they were attacking relocations. Now, because you're, you're matching lists, now they're attacking non-citizen uh, maintenance. It's the exact same procedure in terms of research, but they do not want these agencies talking to each other. They do not want to see any kind of collaboration um, whatsoever. They want list maintenance to only occur when the voter says it's okay. And only in cases of death or relocation. Not felony conviction, definitely not non-citizen. Take a look at uh, Texas for that. Um, and any other kind of issue in between that they just don't want. It. This should be some, this should be a ministerial role. Uh, you should not be getting creative in your job. You should not be having any bright ideas as a registrar. You should be a list shopper. And today you have 10 pieces of mail with death certificates in it. You process those, that's it, your job is done.
Don't go looking for any more that you may have missed. Don't crack open the obituary section and see if you can get a jump on tomorrow's list. You focus on the list that you have today. That's it. That is what the left has been trying to do through the courts when it comes to list maintenance and just shackling folks. H.R. 1 makes federal law. Sure. And for good for good reason. I mean, from their perspective, um, it's kind of like the guy that blocks someone's exit. You know, he doesn't officially put a blockade there, but anytime you want to go to a certain place, they put a, you know, seven foot uh, bodyguard there in front of you and like, hey, well, uh, what are you going to do? And it's every because to me, I look at this and it's a prima facie threat. We have record amount of immigration in this country right now. We could debate that, good or bad, but the reality is it's it's a record amount of immigration. Texas alone, according to the census, most up-to-date census numbers, there's over 3 million immigrants in Texas who are not citizens, meaning they haven't even been naturalized. So obviously there's there's a lot of naturalized citizens, 3 million. Then you have motor voter, which is a seamless gl- glide from driver's licenses into um, into voting. So this is not speculative. Like, oh, maybe they'll go and register to vote even if they're not citizens. Well, they all get driver's licenses, and then now you could – and then a lot of states, even illegal immigrants, could get driver's licenses. Then they could vote, and there's no front-end check. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the courts seem to be blocking off front-end checks on the federal voter registration form that you can't require proof of citizenship then. And then on the back end, they're saying, you know, you can't go back on the rolls and try to get them out in the, in the most uh, efficient process. So are they, they're not saying non-citizens shall vote, but isn't that essentially what they're trying to do? And then, like you said, cover up any information that would indicate or quantify the degree of the problem. So then the, they could say, like this judge, if you, I, I know you read the case, he said, um, what did he say? There's no widespread voter fraud. Right. You, you've got a talking point. Just that, right. Uh, and you'll notice that term widespread. That is not random. Uh, that is the term that is used to quantify uh, what subjectively what is an acceptable amount of voter fraud or what is an unacceptable amount of voter fraud for the left in order for them to say, okay, you know what, the voter ID thing you've been harping about, fine, let's do that. Um, It's not an objective measure. Uh, Widespread is defined by whoever on the left wants to use it that way. Uh, And the the court, to use that term widespread, um, that was not a mistake. Uh, that was very clear uh, to use that term, but let's let's pull up on the stick here and look at this on a higher level. You know, whenever you see the the left agitating for non-citizen voting rights, it is eerily similar. It's not even eerie; it's kind of obvious. Uh, the exact same way that they pushed for Dreamers back in when Bush was president, that they have arrived at today. So it was always, look, they're here now. What are we going to do about them? Uh, You've got kids that were brought here against their will. Uh, What are we going to do about them? Let's give them a pathway to citizenship. Let's give them protection X through Z. Uh, Let's give them all of these great things because they're already here. We can't send them back. You're seeing somewhat of the same thing when it comes to non-citizen voting. So they aren't to the point of saying, look, they're already registered. Uh, Let's Let's let them stay. Let, let's expand whatever rights they have or whatever service we could offer to them. 
uh, at least not on a grand scale. Uh, you are seeing that in little pockets in, in Maryland. Maryland has been very early at this about letting non-citizens yep. vote uh, in school board elections. San Francisco made a bit of news about it a couple months back uh, doing the same thing. So you have these these ice blue pockets that are saying, yeah, non-citizen voting, well, let's have at it. It's not a federal election. No one can stop us. The federalism works for us in that way, too. Uh, so let's try it. Uh, but outside of that, to see the total shutdown of communication on the issue, it, it leads me to think that this is part of the greater play here, which is to let the issue fester uh, in terms of ineligible pe- people becoming registered to vote, particularly non-citizens, so they can eventually make the argument, just like they did with Dreamers and their parents, uh, to say, look, they're already here. We can deport them or we can let them register to vote. And the reason I take it to that step and reach for that is because you look at the other think pieces that they publish, which say, you know what? This rule about U.S. citizens being the only people that are allowed to vote in federal elections, that wasn't the rule up until somewhat recently in our American history. Uh, because even in the 20th century, there you, you could be a non-citizen and voting. Uh, that was fine. Uh, we only changed that um, later on in our history. So you're already seeing the excuse being made. And this, this goes somewhat back to your earlier point about how this is, voting is not an absolute right like it's in the Second Amendment. Uh, this is how the left can take that your point and use it against you and say, look, we have been changing the goalposts on who's allowed to vote in this country yep. since day one. There's no reason we can't change the goalposts and let non-citizens vote, too, uh, even in a federal election. If you live here, you should be able to vote here. People with green cards pay taxes. They send their kids to public schools. Uh, public policy is made about them. Why not let them vote if they're here? If we know who they are, let's not try and fix motor voter. Let's not try and purge the voter rolls. Let's just register them to vote and let them vote because more vo- the more voices, the better. Uh, so that's, that's the downside of how we approach voting as a right, so to speak, is that, yes, the left is very clearly agitating to say we should expand the franchise. Anytime you hear any kind of language about expanding the franchise, getting people off of the sidelines, broadening the number of voices in America, they're talking about non-citizen voting, and maybe some are also talking about letting felons vote uh, in states that do not allow felons to vote, uh, which is most of them. So that's, that's what we're hearing, uh, whether you realize it or not. And the greater goal here is to say, is to get rid of the requirement that only citizens can vote. Uh, and I'll, I'll do you one further. Let's make it real again. Take a look at the state of California. Last week, it was announced that California um, is going to go through yet another audit of its motor voter system, which California is different, you'll remember, because their motor voter system is automatic. If you walk into a driver's license office yeah. and you ask for anything other than the bathroom, you're going to get registered to vote. If you give them your name, you're going to get registered or your information is going to be updated. Something's going to happen with voting as yep. long as you give them your name. And at and, least one million illegals have driver's license in California. You could only imagine if you included legal immigrants. I don't have the numbers on that, but right. it's got to be millions. It is. It was six figures a couple of years ago uh, in the early rollout. I believe it's 600,000 like, in the first couple of months. 
so yeah, it, that grew very quickly. But now they're having to do yet another audit because they have approaching 100,000 cases where 16-year-olds, non-citizens, people registered under the wrong name. But basically anything that could go wrong with the motor voter system that they automated because they're California, now they're having to figure out how all the different ways that they messed up. How did that 16-year-old become registered to vote? How did that green card holder become registered to vote? They're going through yet another audit because they rushed this, and they just thought it was a great idea to forget the fact that voter registration should be an option, uh, that and it should be a choice because that's how we maintain the concept of choice overall in this country. Uh, but no, they decided to make it an automated system, and anyone that walked through became registered. And now California has egg on its face again and having to admit it that they're registering non-citizens and they're registering uh, teens, minor teens, and they don't know why other than the fact that they built a bad system. Uh, so, But California is not going to come out and say, you know what, this automatic registration thing is a dumb idea. Let's just trash it. Let's go back to the way it was. They're going to try and fix it uh, or they're going to do, uh, they're going to enforce their existing law that was written when they created automatic registration, which said, okay, after we find our six-figure number of people that should not have been registered, uh, regardless of even if they voted, particularly when it comes to non-citizens, if you are ineligible in California to, re to register and vote, and you vote anyway, and the you, your attorney can show that you came into the system through automatic registration, then you are immune from prosecution. So they're not going to fix motor voter. They're not going to prosecute those that voted anyway, not just registered, oh my but gosh. went out and voted. You are immune from prosecution, according to California law. Um, yeah, but how does that supersede you, federal law? We'll see. <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, the courts uh, have no problem uh, undermining the INA. I mean, it's black and white there. Um, you know, and wow. Um that that is that is pretty yeah, scary. Hey. That that is, I mean, it's like again, it's eh, this is not even a right or left issue, Logan. I mean, this is like this is all of us, every American citizen. We shall agree want to protect the franchise. Um, it, it just illegals come in by the droves. Um, they're counted in the census, so the California already, already gets more votes from there. Uh, you, you know, seemly, it, it's inconceivable we don't have widespread illegals voting because or non-citizens voting just because of the process you laid out. I mean, there's, there's no backstop to, to that and there's certainly no front end check. And then my concern is this, I want to get your comment on it. HR one is doing a lot of this with the felons voting, same day registration, automatic registration, preventing States from cleaning the voter rolls, a lot of different provisions there. I know your boss testified against it in committee um, it's not going to pass. I mean, it's not going to become law now. It might pass the House, but it's not going to go farther than that and certainly won't be signed by the president. But my concern is that the lower courts all, are already codifying it, kind of similar to what I've told my audience the last couple of years about immigration. It's like we have our constitution, our law, our guarantees, and slowly the lower courts start flipping it on its head and saying, no, like we're the felons. We're the, we're the ones violating the law. So no, really illegals have these rights and that right. And, and slowly but surely the INA is flipped on its head. 
you never really had a bad Supreme Court case on it yet, but they're kind of very passive. So the lower courts keep doing what they want. Even when you get it to the Supreme Court, we'll get a we'll win, but they're not categorical like Thomas's rulings. And then this garbage continues. So let me just give you an example. I want to get your comment on it if you could speak about Ohio. You know, Ohio is a big case where uh, Secretary Houston was cleaning the, the voter rolls there. Um, it got enjoined even by the Sixth Circuit, which isn't even among the worst circuits. And then it went to the Supreme Court. We won there. But again, like, you know, you look at the majority opinion versus Thomas's concurrence, and you see the difference where. You know, they don't rip the cancer out at its roots, and now they're coming back for more lawsuits, whereas if everyone would have agreed to Thomas, Thomas wrote the following. Thomas said, you know, as originally understood, the times, places, and manner clause grants... So to begin with, the states obviously have power, but then it gives Congress an avenue to get involved, which... um, Hamilton said it was only ex- extraordinary circumstances. So he says Congress is the power, quote, only over the when, where, and how of holding congressional elections, not over the question of who can vote. And he went on to categorically say the manner of holding elections was understood to refer to, quote, the circumstances under which elections were held and the mechanics of the actual election. It does not give Congress the authority, and this is Congress much less the courts, Congress the authority to displace state voter qualifications or dictate what evidence a state may consider in deciding whether those qualifications have been met. Categorical. And and you know, many other scholars have written that it's very clear that even that angle for Congress to get involved was only um, essentially just to prevent states in the nascent republic from just abolishing the federal government and not conducting any elections. But pretty much, as, as he said, um, in terms of who can vote that's left to the states, I'm not seeing too many even Republican-appointed judges saying that. And are you as concerned as I am that this cancer is going to keep festering, that as we win the appeals, they just come back with and let a hundred different lawsuits blossom. Right. So uh, there's two important points to pull from that. Number one, you know, the distinction uh, that Thomas was making and why the congressional toehold in this issue is so limited uh, is because of that early concern in the 1700s. What if Virginia just says, you know what, we're going to have our governor's race. Uh, we're going to do some state house issues. Uh, but this U.S. Senate race, uh, we're just not going to do it. And what if other states in, a, in an act of protest or whatever uh, wanted to stifle the growth of the federal government? Uh, and they just did not hold federal elections. They did everything else, but they just were not going to deal with a federal race. That was a concern back then. And that's laughable now because one, there's too much money in it. Uh, but that was a legitimate concern back then. That what if the states got the grand idea to choke off the government, the federal government, by not having federal contests? So that was why we had to have a the Congress the ability to say, no, you will have an election. It will be on this day. Uh, outside of that, you know, Thomas is absolutely right. This, everything else essentially falls to the states, especially when it comes to how they maintain their voter list. Uh, and this is where the rubber meets the road, because in Ohio, Ohio was taking a look at voter history, people that were registered to vote, but they go radio silent. And then whenever, and they weren't showing up to the polls for a period of time, 
the state or counties would send a letter saying, are you there? Still got a pulse? Do you still live in Ohio? Or do you move to Texas like everyone else? Whatever. Uh, however they responded to that re- letter, if they did not respond to it over a period of time, uh, then they were made inactive. And if they still continue to be radio silent, not voting, not calling back, not writing back, whatever, then they were removed from the list. They, they call it the supplemental process. Uh, and it was essentially a faster version of what the motor voter law laid out when it came to list maintenance, when it came to inactivity. So Ohio was shaving off a little bit of time to much more quickly clean this voter file. And the reason they were doing this uh, was because right around the time that they began this supplemental process of cleaning up inactive voters more quickly, they, uh, the state of Ohio was sued by two groups, Judicial Watch and True the Vote. They were co-plaintiffs together. And what they did uh, was they took a look at the voter file and they saw that there were three counties that had more registered voters than adults with pulses living there. And there were a dozen or so more that were just right beneath that. They had like 99.9% voter registration, which may make sense in a state or a republic that has incredibly high voter participation, but that ain't the United States. Uh, So you've had all of these registrants in the voter rolls, but they're not showing up to vote and they're not showing up for years. And the state has reason to believe that they're, and the plaintiffs had reason to believe that they were long gone. That's why they weren't voted. They didn't live in Ohio anymore. And it was Occam's razor. So a lawsuit was filed and at around the time of that lawsuit, Ohio began speeding up its process. You had a group of left-wing uh, organizations sue, saying that this is this supplemental process, this fast track, was not in keeping with federal law. It must be stopped. It goes all the way up to Supreme Court in the Houston decision, and it says, no, that supplemental process is okay uh, because you know, they're being careful about it. It's not selective. Uh, this is based on records to show uh, that people have relocated. They're not communicating. Um, everything is fine here. But instead of just accepting their loss and packing it in, that same plaintiff went and said, okay, what about these people that were removed? What if in time for the 2018 election, we could get a court to require the state to send a piece of mail, maybe even out of state, to say you were removed according to this supplemental decision, the supplemental process, it's fast-tracked. You might not have known that. So if you believe that you should not have been, here's how you can file a provisional ballot for the 2018 election. So even it, even though they lost the Supreme Court in a very public way, yeah, uh, they still were looking for an angle. How can we get uh, these people that are long gone and maybe even registered to vote in another state? But how can we get the state of Ohio to communicate with them and talk about voting in 2018? Uh, and this is, uh, it, I keep coming back to the point, so much of this is about just voter rolls itself, uh, voter rolls themselves and how we maintain them. And this might seem like a tiny little issue next to tax reform and right to choose and gun rights and all these big ideas with uh, big organizations behind them and big debates. They're always on cable news. But the left is focused like a laser on these election issues. And yeah. even if they take a beating at the Supreme Court, 
they will go back to the trial court and they will find some morsel of a victory and just keep building on it. Uh, that, that's how they operate. It's, it's a completely different mindset. When the right thinks of election law, they think of voter ID or what to do in terms of a recount, if that happens. And if they have a voter ID law, then uh, it's like, uh, dust off my hands, I'm done. I don't have to worry about it. Voter ID is going to fix it. Same thing, like, well, let's build a border wall. That's not going to fix everything. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great idea. Border walls are a great thing. Voter ID is a great thing, but it's not a cure-all. But too many people on the right say, well, Texas has a voter ID law now. A whole bunch of states have them. Uh, that's great. Moving on. Maybe we'll come back if there's a recount. Uh, but other than that, we're good. Let, let's go back to Second Amendment or something. Uh, but no, even when the left is losing, they are still drilling down into election law. Uh, and it's there are cultural reasons for it. But it's also because they're essentially operating in a vacuum. There is no one really pushing back on them on the no. local level. You would be amazed how many tiny little chapters of blue-haired old ladies working for the League of Women Voters in counties with maybe 20,000 people in them. But they've got a standing committee of eight people, and they will show up to every election board meeting. They will email them. They will make their voice heard. And no issue is too small. You would be amazed to see in rural Washington state or even in Idaho, Oklahoma, places you just don't think about usually when it comes to election concerns and political concerns, because they're either solid red or solid blue. But I promise you, if you look close enough, you will find a League of Women Voters group that is harassing a county official for saying the text on the ballot is too small. We don't like the placement of it. Uh, we think the translation in Spanish is not correct, but no issue is too small to be sweated. Uh, and there is a top-down architecture on the left, and they're engaging on every single point when it comes to elections because they have figured out that if you want to win an election, you can do that without having to engage in ideas and win debates. You can win an election by working the election system itself. Uh, so you don't really need voter fraud in order to throw an election your way. If you have the ability to understand and potentially rewrite laws like mail ballot laws and create harvest systems, then you can do it legally. That, that's how uh, congressional districts in California that were red for generations flipped uh, because they figured out, you know, this ballot harvesting idea, uh, it could work for us especially if we legalize it. Let's not make it dirty anymore. Let's just put it on the board. Uh, and so the California changed the law and you start seeing the results. Orange County starts changing political stripes uh, because they figured out they weren't making better arguments or different arguments. They just figured out how to change the law and integrate that law with their campaign strategy, particularly their get out the vote strategy. What's the right doing? They're buying radio ads. <laughs> And it's, uh, that's actually where I was going to head next. We're running out of time. As we look forward, everyone's focused on the next election, right? You know, because we just win elections so we could fight over elections and, you know, henceforth. We don't, we don't really do much else on the policy like the left does. But, you know, at least, gosh, we got to reelect Trump, as conservatives would say, and get a Republican House. Okay, fine. Let's indulge that. The biggest concern there is that headed forward, you, you're going to have a repeat of this past election, which is what? You just alluded to it. By my count, there were at least a dozen House races 
where the Republican was ahead election night. It was clearly ahead um, usually the entire night, just, you know, meaning it was uniform, clearly ahead. And then it got flipped a day later. And Republicans lost every one of those, every single one. It's probably more than a dozen. And that could reverberate with electoral politics, you know, the electoral college in the presidential election in uh, 2020. Because, you know, you could have a lot of states that are very close. We all know a lot of states were very close in the Midwest and the Rust Belt um, that gave Trump his margin of victory. My concern, like you mentioned with this ballot harvesting, um, if you could kind of go through what's going on, how to combat that, and just also from the perspective, you're saying that, you know, even if there's no illegalities, you know, the fact that they, it's legal to ballot harvest, it could be totally legal what they're doing. But isn't there also concern that you do have a lot of fraud on top of that, that if you have God knows how many, last time I've heard 24 million outdated votes on the rolls, you know, who knows how many millions, um, that it's so much easier to deal with that in a methodical process than a chaotic process of trying to get people physically to vote on election day. If you're able to game this out over the weeks before with these mail-in ballots and then, you know, go through that entire list of dead voters, you know, voters that are ineligible and so forth. Isn't that really where this election is going to be won or lost? Yes. Um, and it's the, the election's already started uh, because right now we are, maintaining the voter records that will be set in stone for the 2020 election. So up until about 90 days before the 2020 election is when much of the voter registry freezes in place. It's kind of a pencils down period. Uh, that's why um, there's a thing called the National Voter Registration Aid Act, a day, uh, Act, uh, or it's the, the Registered to Vote Day. It's usually in September. Uh, but the reason is because that's the last day which you can create a new registration uh, in many cases. So up until that point, it, it's game on to make sure that that role is as perfect as possible. It's never going to be, but we always want to reach for it uh, because as we see states uh, as entities push the benefits of mail balloting, and we see this cultural shift, particularly among millennials, to say voting in the mail is cool and also reject this belief that millennials are not going to want to use the mail to vote. I would say that's nonsense because you know they have Amazon Prime accounts. They, so much of their uh, life in terms of commerce is over the Internet and delivered through the mail. Uh, they're not going to push aside the concept of ordering a ballot over the internet for it to arrive in the mail and it's sent it back. Uh, so you're going to see an increase in millennial use of mail balloting as well. It is our job to make sure that the address information, the currency and, and the accuracy of those roles are as pristine as possible because as these states continue to push this, they're going to begin to automate um, these procedures more. So in Ohio, uh, there was a time where every registered voter got a piece of mail to say, if you want your mail ballot, yes, and send it back, this piece of uh, mail that I just sent you. You're going to see more states doing that uh, in a, on top of that cultural shift towards uh, mail balloting. And in order for just a better running election, you have to have the voter roll looking at, in a great shape. And that is why 
public interest legal. It's constantly locking horns with groups like LULAC and Demons and the ACLU uh, because we are saying that election officials need to be more empowered to see these issues and act on them in a proactive way, or at least somewhat proactive, to where it is not a bad thing for a voter official to say, I think I should take a look at this registered voter here who is 120 years old. Maybe I should give them a call and, and either remove them because they're dead or find a way to give them a key to the city because they're so old. Maybe call Guinness Book of Records. Who knows? But instead of us saying, public interest legal saying, you've got to be proactive about this, you need to be creative, that's how you're going to keep these roles on, on top. The left is pushing the exact opposite to say, no, you must be completely reactive. You must wait for instructions from the voter. The voter is always right. If the voter does not communicate with you, then there's nothing to be concerned about. Uh, because like you've mentioned with the courts here, especially on the district level, Public Interest legal, legal had a case in Broward County where we presented evidence to say, look, Judge, we have very bad lag times when it comes to removing dead people. We have people registering illegally at commercial mailboxes. We have people becoming registered two and three times at a time. It's just chaos on all sides. And the Demos and the SEIU intervened in that case and said, no, wait a minute. Federal law does not make anyone have to worry about duplicate registrations. Federal law says nothing about illegal commercial addresses. We're only talking about dead people and relocation. You have to stick to that. It's this narrow walkway that you have to go down. Uh, and the trial court erred on the side of Demos, where we were told that federal law when it comes to maintenance only focuses on the exit of the voter roll. It has nothing to do with the entrance. So it does not matter if motor voter is broken or your office is handling voter registrations incorrectly and is registering the same person multiple times. Uh, it does not matter. We're only concerned with how they're removed and when and how much notice they got. Uh, so that's a decision that we are appealing uh, right now in Florida, but that's a perfect example of using the courts to shortcut the goals of H.R. 1, which is to shackle those election officials, keep the voter records as much of a mess as possible, because there's one side that understands the mess. They know how to move the mess around and control the chaos. And the other side is just trying to win debates. Uh, and it all comes back to the point of that there's a difference between winning an election and winning an argument at the same time. And you do not need to have a great argument to win an election anymore. This is all about running numbers, moving bodies, tracking the mail, uh, knowing where the mail is landing and how often it goes out. And if you have to, forcing the issue through harvesting. Uh, we're, not, we're not having a debate over ideas anymore in the direction of our country. It's all about, can I win this next election and how long can I sit in the seat of power? And that's that's what we've evolved to, unfortunately. That is really chilling, <laughs> Logan. I mean, that is uh, not very chirpy, but I think we need to hear it. I mean, we need to hear it sooner rather than later because it's going to come to a point where we can't win elections anyway. And and you're absolutely right. What you're seeing with election law, it's the same thing we've tracked with immigration. And again, the two issues really do merge very closely. And that is when it comes to immigration, I can't remember – the last time we had at least a mass amnesty past Congress. It's been a long time. 
they don't want to do it. Politically, it's very tough because the people really deep down, despite what the media says, they don't want it. But nonetheless, in the courts have really implemented it. They've implemented those goals that we talk about, oh, abolish ICE. Yeah, I mean, how many votes are you going to get for that? It's never going to pass, right? Well, they're essentially abolishing a lot of facets of ICE, um, protecting a lot of, I mean, forget about um, run-of-the-mill illegals, but even, uh, I mean, the the worst criminal aliens now have all sorts of ways that they're shutting down ICE. We're going to have on the show, hopefully later this week, uh, a prominent ICE field office director to discuss this. And that's my fear, that they they look at the levers of power, the force multipliers, what will actually enact their policies and win elections, and then the policies that allow them to win elections, and they go and do them. Um, so just as a parting question, got to run, uh, what should we be watching the closest this week during the debate on HR1? Which which provisions, which, you know, what, what moves from the Democrats will be the most telling? The, the heart and soul of the voting side of HR1 uh, has to do with automatic registration. And we discussed this a bit on what California has done. So California or Oregon have jumped ahead of the curb and created automatic registration. What HR1 promises to do, at least on the initial draft of it, is if you exist in a government database, any government database, um, you become automatically registered to vote. And you might do so essentially at birth, you become pre-registered, or if you're an adult, uh, you're in one database, but you're not in the voter role, then that information is transferred over. We're going to automate all of this. And the greater concern that we have, forget about the maintenance issues. We've done enough of that. Yeah, that's going to create chaos. Example one is California. But think about this culturally. If you are born into a federal program, and think Go in your mind and think, you know, how many federal programs were you actually born into? When you have selective service, if you're a man, that, that took time. Uh, but think about it for a minute. There aren't many. But if you're born into the voter role and you were born without that choice of how and when you operate with your government, when, when you consent to be governed, uh, how your voice is shared, et cetera, if that's taken from you, then ideas like the Green New Deal that we're laughing at right now, one of the reasons we're laughing at it is because we are not born into too many federal programs. But there is a difference between the individual and the government. People still think about it that way. Uh, they don't think about they don't say us when we're talking about the government. They say the government. But whenever you cut that difference and immediately push someone into the voter role, it, it might seem like a tiny little switch that's slick. Uh, from opting in to opting out, which is what automatic registration is. You're opting out of the voting system if you want to. Otherwise, you're in. When we talk about these socialist programs that we laugh about, make memes about, uh, look at pictures of AOC eating a hamburger, that kind of stuff, that's goofy and funny for some right now. But in order to get over that chasm for the left and start implementing those programs, they have to start automating things and automatic registration. It's, it's the reason why it's HR1 is because if they can make that change, there will be more cultural and political changes to follow. And if you want proof of that, take a look at what happened with early voting in the 70s and the 80s. There used to be a time when what made e pluribus unum worked, part of the unum was on election day, rich, poor, black, white, and yeah. at all points in between, we all went to our crappy community center and we voted together. We didn't have to vote for the same guy, 
but it was that act of doing it yeah. together. When you started making early voting occur and you were doing a, a voting by mail, you separated the, the affair and you forever pulled apart that national process of us all doing one thing together in the same 12 hour period. And it became a separated issue. And that's when polarization really started to take root uh, because we, we just weren't even voting together anymore. Like that, that tradition was gone and you're never going to get it back again. Uh, you can trace back so many splits in our culture and in our politics to when early voting came into being. And you can blame Texas and California for creating it first. But election procedure has a cultural impact. It's an upstream impact on us as a nation. And if you're born into an election system, you're going to be much more accepting of government systems on top of it that you're born into in the future. And things like the Green New Deal become so much easier. That's why H.R. 1 is number one for them. That's why it needs to be stopped. This is a cultural issue just as much as a legal issue uh, and a political one. It's all wrapped up into this, and that's why it's their first priority. That's a really powerful point. I want you guys to bookmark this because the synergy between the cultural aspect and the political legal aspect is is unbelievable how the two work together because the culture they create paves the road. You're, you're saying it um, – preps the field to accept the political change. And and that's that's a great example you gave with early voting. I mean, I'm even old enough to remember when like, you know, what what is that? That's that's insane. We all thought the idea was insane. Like, yeah, we're gonna get rid of that. But then, you know, it it took root so quickly that, you know, even if we had conservatives in charge of every state, there's no way we could take that away now. And it, it, again, paved the way for more and more voting anomalies, teaching millennials that voting is something like, you know, with your Amazon Prime, where you literally click a button, your credit card is saved in there, and boom, out pops a thing. I don't want to move my rear end to vote. That's too hard. Um, and, and then seamlessly, then they have the legalities and the policies ready to go when the culture uh, accepts that. Um, and the voter fraud is so much easier to deal with. Logan, thanks so much for giving us this sobering but important briefing. And we really look forward to having you back again. Thanks for the invite. There you have it, folks. Logan Churchwell of the Public Interest Legal Foundation. Check them out online. There is no group like it. Thank you for listening. God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 